for another episode of Comeback Stories and uh, just thinking about how I wanted to introduce today's guest and I'm just going to introduce him as a dear friend of mine, one of my teachers over the last year, gone through some massive transformations with him. Whew. Welcome to the show, Don Bergeron. Thank you. Welcome, man. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Man, it's such a gift to have you here. <laughs> I feel like this one's going to be deep and rich and emotional and the most beautiful way possible. So, um, feels good to have you in Vegas. We rolled up and met for a little meal before and we're like, God, it's so interesting being in Vegas, like where our lives are now <laughs> yeah. and just kind of feeling the energy. And, and then a lot of people come to Vegas and maybe get the buzz and the lights. And we're just like, Whoa, this is kind of like a, can be a very low vibe place for, for many reasons. And, um, there's a lot of excitement that happens too, but there's a lot of darkness and we were just having a little moment with that where, at one point, I think we were in that darkness and mm. probably coming here and tearing it up. A thousand percent. Yeah, thinking we're, <laughs> we're having the time of our lives, but um, we're slowly destroying ourselves and times have changed and it took a lot of uh, work and healing to get there. But um, you've been an essential part of my healing journey, so I'm just grateful you're here. And we want to know initially, what was it like growing up for you? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I've been excited about this for some time. Um, yeah, growing up, uh, grew up in Southern California. Um, my parents worked really hard uh, to try and give my sister and I kind of the best life we wanted. I was a little bit more work than my sister. Um, I was diagnosed, I'm 52, so back in 1977, 76, I was diagnosed with, back then was called, uh, what's now called attention deficit disorder was called hypertensive or hyper hyperactivity where I couldn't sit still. So for the first six or seven years of my life, my parents just had their hands tied trying to figure out what to do with a kid that couldn't sit still, um, kind of had an inability to do any kind of schooling, anything that required any kind of structure. So with their hands tied, I think my parents kind of decided they didn't know what to do. They tried everything from diet um, to therapy. And eventually, in my young age, at about six and a half, seven, uh, I became a part of a clinical trial at UCLA where they started treating kids with Ritalin, um, which is now kind of, I don't know how many people are now being served Ritalin for kids. That's kind of a high, high energy medicine for people. Um, I think nowadays you get people with Adderall. Um, they're taking Adderall. But in that space, I, um, for about six years, was taking Ritalin every single day. Um, so that was a hard time for me now as I can look at it years removed. I can see patterns and things that were created in that space um, as a kid that I didn't understand. I didn't understand a lot of the things. I didn't know what it was like to have really bad and scary dreams until that point, and that medicine was was doing that. Um, so kind of a hard childhood growing up um, was taking that medicine. My parents were still kind of at their wits' end. Ritalin, for most people, would make them speed up. For my metabolism, it made me slow down. So I was taking a pretty high-dose milligram, I think it was twice a day for a while, just trying to get me to calm down. 
So kind of a tough childhood growing up. A lot of memories of people talking about me um, in that clinical trial. I think there were seven or eight of us, and we were basically behind a two-way mirror where they would give us placebo, give us Ritalin, and then give us tests and different equations we had to try to figure out. And I remember those things now as an older man, um, much more than I did as a child. And that's some of that stuff has kind of worn on me, always being put in the classes for people that couldn't sit still, um, had attention deficit disorder at that point. So yeah, uh, growing up as a kid was kind of a, a challenge for me. So when you say you were in the classes for people that didn't sit still, are you talking about special ed classes? Yeah, all throughout, um, well, for sure, all through high school, all four years, I was in special education classes, yeah. Wow, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, and you were walking me through the image of, like, where those special ed classes were in the school. Can you just talk about that? Because I just have that image, and I think that's so daunting to think about where you were placed. Yeah, I think, you know, the the teachers that teach special ed, I think, first and foremost, are saints, salt of the earth, Mm -hmm. right? I can still remember some of them in their faces and how gracious they were in that space. But basically they would, you know, there's the center part of the school and the campus and most of the classes are in that area. But they had these trailers down kind of on the backside where the track field is, kind of the abandoned part of the school where we would go take our classes. So it was kind of pushed away and far, far removed from the rest of the school. Isolated, Mm -hmm. different. Right. I mean, these things that just stay with us, but, you know, we don't even realize them, right, until a lot of times it's later in life when we've done some work to realize just the impact it's had. And we know we have to go back and really heal that, heal that child, heal, heal that inner child. Yeah. Yeah. Listening to a lot of what those teachers or even some of the therapists that I was going to hear them say to my parents that, well, he's never really going to become much more past this, or he's going to have learning issues. He's never going to be able to go to college. Mm. He's not going to be able to do this or that. I remember all those things. Some of those have come back within the last 10 to 15 years of thinking about it and being like, wow, maybe that's why I've tried to always outperform and never let anybody see a side of me that was like not trying to be the best of what I could be because I was told for so long, I was being told that. And at the same time, it's this silent conversation that my parents are having with someone in a room that I can totally hear, knowing that they're saying, you know, he's probably not gonna be a scholar student or, you know, become a lawyer or a doctor or anything in that space because he has a learning disability. Wow. Do you have a, like a specific early memory of pain? Maybe that, maybe, listening to people say that, like um, limiting who I was. And I don't think I could have defined it then or even within the last, you know, with probably within the last 10 years, I'd be able to define that. But like just seeing people not see the potential that maybe I thought I had and being kind of swept under the rug, put to the trailers down at the bottom of the school or never really amounting to very much based on what other people are telling me believing what other people are telling me. Wow. Yeah. Who would you say your, your first real teacher was? Mm, My dad. Yeah. I love my parents. God. Um, They went through a lot. They had a kid that was kind of out of control and, you know, 
it's not their fault on so many levels, but you know, I, I, I watched my parents work for me. Um, I watched my dad every single day. My dad was a, a carpenter and a contractor and he came home late, smelled like wood from cutting, you know, two by fours and wood for a house. And he would go to bed and he'd wake up and he'd do it again. And I watched my dad work so hard and that created like this beautiful work ethic for me when my time to become a father was. Um, so my parents are my heroes and my relationship with them is just as beautiful as anything I've ever had as far as a relationship that's come with time and that's come with me and maturity and um, reconciling some of the things that have happened in my past and, and forgiving them and loving them for, um, they did the best job they could raising a kid. It's hard raising kids. It's really hard. Do you have a kid that's also your teacher? <laughs> yeah. Mm. I, have, I have three grown kids. Um, yeah, my, my uh, kids have taught me a lot of lessons, um, specifically my son, Matthew, maybe my greatest teacher of all time. Yeah. What have you learned from him? Yeah, uh, so much, right? Um, yeah, until you have kids, you don't really know what it feels like to be um, in a place of this unconditional love. Like you just don't care. You just love them, right? And yet, as a father, it's really hard to be a dad. It's really hard because you have all those things that are happening throughout the day in your own life, your own past stuff, your relationship with your wife. And then you have these three little souls that just want your attention, want your love. And they don't care about your day. They don't care about what's happening. They don't care what's happening in the world or on the news or any of that stuff. And you know, learning from my kids has been probably like some of my greatest lessons, but specifically my son, just relentless forgiveness, um, showing me a side of him that I should have expected because of the way I raised him, but you forget those things. And I think in, in some of that is just allowing myself to see my son become a man. And watching him and being like, that's a good man. Like, if I walk in the room and Matthew's in the room, I can often say, I'm no longer the smartest man in the room. He's a good kid. Wow. Well, <laughs> before you became a father and you were able to, you know, talk about terms like relentless forgiveness, um, I want to know, like, what was going into young adulthood like for you and transitioning through that? Because you talked about the wounds that you brought with you from your childhood and then you brought the other end into it, talking about how you were able to love your children just for who they are, no matter what they do. Like, what was the in-between part? Like, take us through that part of your life. Yeah. <clears throat> so when I turned 12, um, I started smoking cannabis. And in that space, I stopped taking Ritalin. And I didn't tell anybody that for about two more years. I would just hold the pills and smoke. And smoking for me at that time in my life allowed me to become like this open, slowed down version of myself that was connecting my head to my heart. And I didn't have those words back then, but looking at it now, I can say that. Um, that served me up until a certain point when my life got busy and that was no longer a space for me. I got married and kind of walked through a different time in my life. 
cannabis was really a beautiful thing for me. And again, I wouldn't have been able to say that three years ago. But looking back on it, what saved me from those voices of people saying, I'm never going to amount to very much, was that plant medicine. And I don't smoke cannabis anymore. I don't, I don't even like it. Um, I like the smell of it, but I, I don't like smoking cannabis. But that medicine shifted me from becoming what most people who take Ritalin on the daily basis for seven to 10 years generally become addicted to other hard drugs. And it's not going to be soft drugs. It's going to be harder ones because it's got to get them up there. So I'm really grateful in that space that, you know, cannabis came my way and it served its purpose. And yeah, just kind of that was up until about I was 21 years old. And then I went years and years and years without using any kind of substances at all. So from, like you said, so you, Donnie and I, like our, our getting to our rock bottom in darker places in our lives was definitely like substances were probably the main mm-hmm. contributor um, to the decisions and, you know, the behaviors that led to that point. You talk about how you went a long stretch of with no substances being used. What what are the, th- the circumstances, the events that led up to what would you would say as the lowest point or rock bottom in your life? Yeah, my, my dark night of the soul. Um, a series of um, self-inflicted wounds and really bad choices. I was in a 25-year marriage and about a 35-year relationship. And instead of having the ability to kind of end something when I should have, um, meaning to like, end my marriage rather than destroy it um i destroyed it and in that space um you learn a lot about yourself the first half of my life i feel like i was watching other people do these things and make bad choices and saying ah don't do that don't do that definitely don't do that and towards the second half of my life i realized i was making some of those bad decisions and it drew me into a place of finally ending my marriage um, and kind of falling into a space of depression, for sure. Um, Not really knowing what I wanted to do, everything I was doing. Prior to that, I was involved in the church, and um, the church I was going to doesn't allow divorce. And so, you know, out of 150, 200 friends, when... I chose to end the marriage, lost all those friends. Um, They have their reasons, and I'm okay with them having their reasons. Um, But that that kind of that period of going through those dark times drew me to have to do a different style of healing. Um, I did talk therapy for a couple years prior to ending the marriage, but I wasn't honest. Um, had a great therapist, loved him to death, saved my life on so many levels, helped me to see that it's safe to be a man and to, to be fucked up and to admit that you're wrong. And even when I admitted to him that I wasn't telling him all the truth and I'd been hiding stuff from my, my wife at the time, he forgave me, just said, hey, we'll get through this. Let's talk about it. Keep talking about it. Um, had some other people in my life that kind of pointed me in another direction and um, have been doing some of that work since, kind of on a different level. Yeah. How is how has your healing uh, journey continued to expand from that point? You talk about starting with talk therapy. Like, what 
what has it expanded into now, the way that you and Donnie have formed a relationship? How did you get to that point? Yeah. Um, so I like to, to talk about what I do now as kind of a grief and trauma therapist. Um, although I'm not a licensed therapist, um, the experiences that I've been able to have through the use of plant medicine um, have really allowed me to heal on a different level. Talk therapy is really good, but it takes a long time to get to the bottom of things. And in that space, there's, there's a time where you're going to be sitting in that depression that could be somewhat dangerous for people who, who have a tendency towards that. I wasn't in that space, but I've never been that dark in my space and alone. And somebody told me that I should try a couple different plant medicines. And in that space, I think what it, what those medicines allow is, you know, there's a famous saying that you can do 10 years of therapy in one hour. And it's, it's a little bit of an advancement on talk therapy. It takes away kind of the, you know, you get 40 minutes with a therapist, you end early, you know, you don't get a lot of time to open things up and then it's okay, we'll see you next Tuesday. These types of medicines, plant medicines, allow you to kind of open up and have bigger conversations, bigger experiences that deal with things on a very short amount of time. Um, they're not for everybody, but they are definitely for a lot of people. Yeah. Can you talk about what, what specific medicines you're referring to? Yeah, I think there's a couple. Um, psilocybin, so magic mushrooms are what people call them, but it's, um, that's a very powerful medicine that's useful for helping people with PTSD, trauma, um, grief, uh, really anything that you would even go for regular top, talk therapy to. Um, there's other medicines. There's um, what's called 5-MeO-DMT, which is toad medicine. Um, that's a really powerful medicine as well. Um, that's more like 25 to 30 years of therapy in about one hour. Some people say that it's really intense. Joe Rogan's talked about it. He wasn't speaking specifically about what's called toad medicine or bufo. He was speaking about a synthetic form of 5-MeO-DMT, a little bit different. But that's a pretty powerful medicine. Some people say it's gentle. Other people have said it's pretty intense. But it's definitely um, a medicine that works on the part of your brain that wants to show you that you're divine, that you're good just the way you are. There's not a lot of work to do in that space. It's almost as though you're going to have a private meeting sitting here with whatever you call God, divine source, him or her, whatever it is. There's no, there's no um, contingency when it comes to who God might be in these medicines. It's whoever it is for you. It can be Jesus. It can be whoever you want. Um, these medicines are super powerful at helping people to deal with things that are hard to deal with. So for me, this you know, to speak of my experience, the first time I worked with this toad medicine, the day my life changed. It was Easter Sunday, 2018, the first time I ever received it. There was a little bit of sacrilege in me trying to do it on Easter Sunday just to kind of break the mold on some things that I'd always kind of been busy on Easter Sunday and Christmas. And, you know, it's a very short process, about an hour. The first part is about 10 to 15 minutes long, but for the first time in probably 
what I can say is 40 years, uh, I felt joy. And I felt it without somebody telling me, are you feeling joy? What are you feeling right now? Are you feeling happy right now? It was just this overwhelming sense of joy and connection to myself, self-forgiveness, um, kind of a, 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 the ability to love myself differently than I'd ever been free to love myself. So that's a really powerful day in my life. Um, all days are judged by that one day. And as I took that medicine, I realized, you know, as scared as I was in the space, doing all these new things and trying new, new, you know, avenues of trying to heal myself, I realized this is what I want to do. I want to help other people, specifically men, because we're pretty locked up in the space where we are and we don't know how to communicate very well, or at least we think we do. But hmm. when we have a good partner, we realize we're not really that good at it. And there's a lot of work to be done in that space. So I, uh, I was a general building contractor for a long time and kind of closed that shop up and trying to serve others because of what it's done for me. Wow. I listened to you articulate all of this and it's, you know, the exact reason why I felt safe enough to move forward in my own sobriety to, to lean into this medicine. But I, we initially connected through your partner, Christy, who with me moving to San Diego and I kept like it was coming up in every conversation, this whole idea of psilocybin and a, a few of my sober friends had gone through these, um, these ceremonies, these um, bigger, they might call it the hero's journey where it's a five hour journey blindfolded. And um, it was the sober friends for me that gave me permission to do it, but it was also, you know, Christy and just the, the, um, the safe space that she provided. And, and, you know, you say 10 years of therapy and I'm sitting here first with the mushroom psilocybin journey that I did. And I always say a lifetime's worth of therapy because it just breaks through all the limitations of the mind. And some of my journey wasn't easy. I went through mm -hmm. this massive grief of a dog that I loved and cherished and was so attached to. And it was the most visceral thing in my whole experience. It was so sad and I was not bubble crying. And I've told this story to some, but like, his name is Bubba and he's still alive, but I lost him in, um, in a breakup, right? We, we had to kind of split up our dogs. And I remember just sitting there crying and going, Bubba, I love you. I love you, buddy, but I got to let you go. And I'm making this fist and I couldn't do it. And then eventually I let it go and it was, I let him go. And it was so sad and so beautiful at the same time. And, um, Somewhere along in that journey, a few stops later, this little brown Frenchie showed up <laughs> and it's the exact dog I have today. I swear to you, it blows my mind. But yeah. other just massive, massive breakthroughs in that visions and certain things I've seen with the podcast, like that's what I had in that first five hour session, but I hadn't met you yet. And then we went to dinner um, and just the way like listening to you talk and just the way that you articulate this and your calm presence and this knowing it's like, again, there's something that you have that I want. And it gave mm -hmm. me the trust to lean into Bufo and go through the ceremony. And I've done it twice, once with your teacher and, and you there also. And in that first journey, it was exactly what you said, sitting with God. I did not see a face, but I felt the presence of God. And it made me understand that I, I'm actually safe. I'm safe. And I was saying it out loud. I'm safe. I'm safe. I'm safe. I don't know how for how long, but I kept saying it. Beautiful. Oof. And again, it made me realize my whole life, everything I've done was just to feel safe. This overachiever, caring what other people think, um, people pleasing, validation, achieve, achieve. And to, to be able to see that, like you said, everything will be judged on that day. 
I can't ever unsee that. And more than unsee, unfeel it. Like no one can ever take that away from me. And it's also given me so much understanding of the world and specifically women who walk through this world and we can walk to our car at 10 o'clock at night and we don't think about anything Right. where a woman has to go and they're probably scared out of their minds every time. And so I think we're all walking through this world just trying to feel safe. And some people close their hearts. Some people do drugs and alcohol. Some people hide in their work. And so it's like, it just gave me such a better understanding first of myself and of the world. And then the one thing I'll share in my second ceremony with you, it was just me and you that did it together. And one of the most profound things, I mean, I had some, you seem to always show up in these journeys because I just think (laughs) you're such an important part of my life. But there was a point where I was rubbing Don's arm and like rubbing it like I would typically rub a girl's arm, like just so passionate. And I'm just telling him, I love you. I love you. And I'm crying. And I love you so much, buddy. And it was like all of the judgment of like, oh my God, this is gay. Or like all of that self, it was, didn't even matter, man. Mm. And I'm just in there like caressing his arm and telling him like how much I love him. And it was the most like beautiful thing of like unconditional unbound love that I've ever felt in my life, man. (laughs) Didn't matter to you. It mattered to me. (laughs) Actually, you were squeezing my arm (laughs) so hard. (laughs) There was a moment where I thought, well, you might break my bone, but I'm in it. I'm here. So that was beautiful. It felt like I was was a beautiful moment. (laughs) And that's why I do this. I mean, your, your description just brings me back to it's a fuck yes for me on all of it. Like I've seen so many people changed and it's not that everybody needs to change, but the people that do know that they want to do better and they do a medicine like this or any of the plant medicines that are out there that are valuable and helping people to become better humans, to love better, to be better spouses, better friends, better relatives, right, to the, to the collective, any of that, so precious. That's why I want to do this. I want to see the people that have those kinds of transformations then someone else sees it, then someone else sees it. And we're healing the collective one person at a time. We don't beg people to do these medicines. We offer it to them and we let them make those decisions. Medicine has its own power. Can you talk about the actual, like for Bufo specifically, what it is that comes from a toad? Can you just give us like a little breakdown of what that is for anybody that maybe doesn't sure so it's the sonoran desert toad is the the animal that we get this medicine from it's also called the bufo alvarius toad um there's some other toads that go with it colorado river toad it's also called but this toad lives underground for nine months out of the year comes out three months out of the year june july and august and it has these glands on the side of its neck that it uses for protection and some beautiful soul divinely inspired saw that gland and squirted it out, right? Kind of relieved the pressure from that gland and squirted onto something. And then in some strange, again, divine way, inhaled it. And that's where they found this divine essence in that one hour experience. Um, It's the venom from the Sonoran Desert Toad that's dried. Now that's poisonous if it's ingested, but when it's vaporized, it's not. And it, it has different components to it there's what's called 5-MeO-DMT which is naturally occurring in this venom and there's also 25 other attributes in it called bufotine which is from the toad that you get and that have that divine it creates the divine shape shift where it shuts down a part of the front of your brain that kind of controls 
everything that happens in your body. It's the turn on your seat or put on your seatbelt. Um, make sure you turn the alarm on at night. Don't point the gun at your face. Those types of things. It, it slows that down and allows the other parts of your brain that do most of the thinking and the articulating and the loving and the caring and the, the generating of generosity and the kindness, kind of all those, those valves that work in our brain, it allows us to work directly. So this medicine has a very strange and powerful way of reacting very quickly when it's taken and doing things incredibly clean and simple and and pure um some people say they see a white light in that space some people don't see anything and they just come out and say that was an incredible experience where did i just go what what just happened like you know an hour later you're driving home no hangover no you know no it's not even like cannabis where you know if someone smokes cannabis six hours they're kind of stuck in that bus this medicine's super clean and super simple. The brain loves it. Um, it's metabolized very quickly in the brain. Um, but it, it's medicine that comes from a toad. It's the venom of the Sonoran Desert toad. And the medicine yeah. actually continues to work through you for a couple, Actually, it's about six weeks. Six weeks, yeah. I mean, I did it three weeks ago, and I, I feel it, but I get feedback from people that don't even know maybe what I did. That's what's, Something's different. Yeah. Something's different about you. you More caught than taught, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's... it's. Um, so is it technically a psychedelic? No. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think it is. Some people might call it that, but it's an entheogen. So that, that basically defined means the divine within. So this is a medicine that creates that God molecule. Something's happening in it. Um, there's not a lot of visuals for the most part. I'd say probably 60 to 75. 70% of the people don't see any visuals. Um, so no, I don't consider it a psychedelic. If I can back up for a second, I want to talk just about how we get the medicine and how important that is. Mm. There's been a lot of controversy about these toads that are coming out for these three months that they're being traumatized or abused. The medicine that we receive is harvested with love and compassion, and it's been being done by the Siri tribe in northern Mexico and southern Arizona for years. Um, we take great care in how the medicine comes to us, who's harvesting it, um, the consistency of it. Um, it has to be done with love. It's kind of like if you were to grow roses and they don't have any smell, don't feel like there was any love put into those roses. I'm not saying that the toad medicine has a smell, but it's harvested with the intention of healing and caring and, and being part of the tribe. Um, I've been blessed to be kind of initiated into that space, to be given the medicine and to be able to serve it to people who are willing to take it. And one of my main concerns is making sure that the medicine that I serve has been done with reverence, honor to the tribe and with love so just to make sure that you know it's very clear that there are places and people that are harvesting that medicine without love and some of the cartels have actually gotten involved in that now and it's becoming a thing but it's really important to where we get our medicine and how we get our medicine just as a follow-up to that i think there's like a beautiful uh, lesson of like open-mindedness in all this you talk about it's the venom from a toad and it and it's a, a way for it to protect and you know kill 
kill something that is trying to attack it, but in a way like we've been able to find it and use it as a way to enhance a life experience. Um, and you look at whether it's psychedelics, whether it's um, you know just healing medicines, you know they may have like a certain label from people um, as you know a hippie thing or you know it's like you know like using drugs, but it's really you know with with a level of open mindedness, this is really truly a pathway to freedom. And I feel like open mindedness has helped us in recovery. It's helped us in, you know, just going about any healing journey that is uncomfortable to us, but to at least give it a chance to seek it out, to ask questions and be like, could this possibly work for me instead of labeling something? And that's just something that came to me right here. And it's like, that's so beautiful. Like a venom is allowing people to heal and to grow. It's like, it's God. I mean, it's it's nature. (laughs) What else could it be? It's nature. Right. And that's like, I'm, I mean, it's just amazing how you just articulated all that. And I think it's um, important for me to talk about this because I've had an identity that's attached to sobriety and I still have my sobriety date that's tattooed on my arm. And I feel strongly about that. I feel more sober than ever. Um, And I understand I'm going to get some questions about that. And that's okay because I was actually that person that used to do the same thing to the people that went before me that said they were sober. And I had my own, because it was just threatening this old belief system and it was kind of a broken down belief system in me. So, you know, I'm always public about my stories on social media and I've shared, I've shared the mushroom journey and I've shared the two Bufo journeys. And the beautiful thing is like 99% of the, the feedback and the comments, not that any of it really matters, um, but they're positive. And then there's always one or two and I'm like, that's okay. I totally get it. I was there, but for, for me, we're always trying to break stigmas. And I think there's one around some of these medicines, especially when it comes to sobriety. And you know, the truth is for me, like my sobriety only matters to myself. And I know the people closest to me know they know what's up and they and, you know, it's reassuring to just get some feedback from the people that really matter to me that say, man, there's something different. And it's it's the work, it's the medicine and it's like wise counsel and and teachers like you um, who I've just trusted. I mean, you just hear the way that you articulate this and it's just so easy to just surrender because you have something in your energy and your voice that I just want. Mm -hmm. So it makes it easy for me to say yes. And if we can give anybody else permission to do the same, it's all about intention though. Like I was this just, is, that was the word that was in my mind because my sponsor always talks about, you know, this is not about chasing a sobriety date. It's about growth. It's about progress. And you look at our intention behind this. It's not to just like get high and escape or get high and just like numb out or not feel anything. It's really, I, I'm doing this with the intention of showing up and being a better person, being a better spouse, being a better friend, being a better relative. Like the purpose behind it is for me to show up better for these people and be less self-centered, be more selfless, be more into the world what I can contribute to life. So it's like the intention behind that would, you know, over time, if you affirm it to yourself and continue to take it in, like that's what could free you from the shame of like, oh, who am I embarrassing my recovery community? No, I'm trying to grow and be a better version of myself. That's why I'm taking this route. Yeah, yeah, yeah man. It's so powerful. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, man, I knew this conversation would go deep and it's, mm. it's again, it's important in my own, in my own journey, just to carry this message. We have a platform here where we get to reach a lot of people. And I think there's people out there in their own sobriety or in their own addictions that are looking for something. And yeah, it's like, we used to pop pills every day, 
to not <laughs> yeah. feel, to numb. Right. This isn't about that. Like, let me be clear. Like, it's about feeling all of the feels, but you have to feel it to heal it. And sometimes therapy is amazing. And I think therapy got us to this point where we felt okay to maybe lean into something like this. Mm. Meditation is amazing, but it, I don't know. You'd have to meditate your whole life and more and somehow take off into enlightenment to really get to this space. We're all looking for hacks sometimes. And I don't even like to say that word hack because I feel like this medicine is it's sacred and those words don't really go hand in hand. But if we want to streamline a process of healing and get to this place and get a relationship with God, I mean, that was my number one intention in doing Bufo was to grow closer to God. I felt like I was meditating, but my I wasn't really praying, so I didn't really have the meaningful conversations. And it might look like I'm a spiritual person and have this, but like really I knew I needed more and I got everything I asked for. Yeah. Mm. You know, the, these medicines are really good for opening up that box and looking at it and sorting through the things that matter and getting rid of the things that don't. So many people walk into our ceremonies and they're carrying this big metaphorical backpack that's so heavy, just packed with things. And what I find is that in the medicine, people are taking these really deep breaths and it looks like, you know, it's kind of like, <sighs> and all of a sudden you're like, something just shifted, right? We breathe so so quickly and so like lacking depth in our breath on a daily basis that that to me is one of the most beautiful indicators in the middle of a ceremony that someone's right where they need to be is this that deep breath and it's just a long exhale. And the work doesn't end when you take the medicine, right? I often say that people should start doing therapy as soon as they're done with the medicine because that's where the real work is. You can still be an asshole and do medicine. <laughs> you can still go to therapy. You can still go do all of the AA. You can do as many things as you want and still not be a really good person. What matters is that when you do these medicines or you do breath work or you do yoga or you do any of the, the, the things that are so beneficial, you have to integrate those things. There's nothing more important. Integration is more important than the medicine. The medicine is just a platform to get you to the space where you can do more work in a quicker time and also help you develop into the person that you really want to be, like seeing a clean, pure version of the self that you are. Um, but integration is so important. It's, it's paramount. So many people do journeys and journeys and journeys and journeys, and they're not doing anything to integrate in that space. And we're in need of integration coaches, people who, can, who have done the medicine so they know exactly what you just went through, and they can help speak to that space. They can talk about love. They can talk about God. They can talk about genuine intentions moving forward, how they can become better in the things that they're doing. But without, if you're just doing these medicines, you're really just using at a certain point, which goes back to, well, you're just partying then, which is why I love specific medicines that I work with. They're not psychedelics. It's not about having a good time. If you think coming and sitting with sacred toad medicine is something that you're going to go tell your friends about and say, let's do it on a Saturday night, you're sorely mistaken. Mm -hmm but you will tell all your friends about it and they'll probably want to do it too because it's going to be a new version of you. It's going to be the Donnie Starkins that's always wanted to be exactly who he's supposed to be. Mm. The best version of you. 
the divine within. It's not anything I do either. It's what happens when you connect yourself. I only give you back permission and the keys to get you to that space. Mm. You're the divine holder of that, right? When I serve someone the medicine, I like them to look me in the eyes because I'm asking them for permission to guide you back to yourself, to go back home. And when people come out, it's the same thing I said the first time I had the journeys. Where did I just go? And my, my uh, teacher said, home. Mm-hmm. You went home. The safe home. Not the one that you were raised in. Not the one where you were abused in. Not the one where you had all these traumas in. But like genuine home. Like the house of God. It's within each of us. <sighs> that integration piece, I, I, I'm... It's reminded me of like rehab and then it's what do you do when you get out of rehab? It's the same thing. It's the after work. It's the, the work that you do afterwards. You can rehab essentially can be kind of easy because you're in that safe space. The real work starts when, when you get out and it's the same thing for integration. And I think um, I've been grateful to have accountability around my own integration practices and organically have as a coach have it's turned into some me being an integration coach for people that have um, walked through some of these medicines also. And it's so beautiful because the accountability is everything, right? People know what to do. They just don't always do it. So without the account- accountability, we just end up going back into our so- same old ways. So that level of accountability, because the integration, you're right. Like I think about some of the, and I won't get into the specifics of the integration practices for my initial um, psilocybin journey, but to see those start to come into pl- to play out, I was like more blown away about the integration, how I saw something, I can't unsee it, I took action on it, and I'm like, oh my God, there it is. I've had conversations with you in my in like the last Bufo ceremony, I'm like, oh my God, and like I'm feeling him like on a heart-soul level in these journeys, and then we have a conversation afterwards, and he's like, yeah, I'm feeling that too. I'm like, oh my God. Hmm. It's just, it's divine. Energy. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. How, yeah. Does, how does someone, if they want to, continue into this they want to take this next step how who do they contact who where should they look to research for a place near them or is there a certain place that they have to go to um, do a ceremony like this what what would be a next step for them yeah i mean there's lots of people that serve this medicine um, some better than others Um, you know they can contact me Um, i've got a couple other of my teachers that i can also refer to i'm sure we can find a way to get that information to people but it's really, for, for me, I really spend a lot of time with our, our potential clients talking about what medicines they're on, what their history is, um, what their use has been, kind of where they're at in their life, and how that could be a contraindication for actually doing the medicine. Um, generally, it's only going to be people who have heart issues. Um, because this does um, affect your blood pressure in a lot of ways. It does raise your blood pressure. So, But the, the amount of time that I spend talking to clients in preparation for the journey is also about making them feel comfortable that I'm going to provide them with a safe set and setting for being in a place to kind of be outside your body for about an hour. And my job as a facilitator is to always have another female in the room when a female is being served for accountability and to always have another man because um, these 
ceremonies can be dynamic, um, not necessarily physical, but they can be dynamic where there can be a lot of trauma that's released. There can be a lot of crying, a lot of grief in that space, but there can also be just total bliss where people don't move the entire time. So I always make sure to kind of interview people and make sure that they're a good fit for the medicine. Um, there's also other medicines. People don't have to start with toad medicine. Um, you know, psilocybin's a great space. In the next couple of years, the FDA is going to do hopefully the right thing and, and make it um, unscheduled and make it where people can start using it as a therapeutic method or modality. Um, same thing with MDMA. The, these medicines are going to help hopefully the people that need it the most. And we have so many people that are on antidepressants and are still depressed. <clears throat> so, and they have no libido and they're stuck. They can't, they can't get off of them. So I like to interview potential um, participants in the medicine to find out where they're at and see if we can wean them off of some of those medications and see if we can get them this medicine because they're the people that need this medicine. What is it, like 72% of most Americans are on some form of antidepressant. Oof. And that includes children, wow. right, from 12 up. And I do know some kids that are under 12 that are taking Adderall. So it's like, I was one of those kids, right? But we want to do better. We want to be able to give them opportunity. That doesn't mean they have to do um, these medicines. There's other modalities, right? Teaching a child to learn how to control their breathing. Huberman Lab, right? Huberman's a beautiful uh, podcast where he talks about teaching kids how to box breathe, teaching kids how to facilitate themselves when they're in, you know, a, a difficult trying time. Like there's so many things we can do for those kids to teach them yoga, stretching, exercise, all those things. But it's really important to make sure that anyone who's coming to these ceremonies, there's no contraindications for the medicine working with them with whatever they might be taking. So much here, man. I think we're going to have to have you back for round two because we didn't barely get into much of your story. We got a little bit of it, but we didn't hear the comeback. But, um, man, I just want to thank you for being here. Um, you mean the world to me, both of you two, like two of the most important people in my life by far. Um, and just how much you've helped me heal and given me the safety, feeling that safety and feeling that um, ability just to surrender and trust this. It's, it's changed my life forever. And man, it's just so cool to have you here and have both of you guys here. Like, whew, very, very grateful. Yeah, thank yeah. you very much for having me. Mm. Yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a voice for uh, a new way of healing that most people may not have known about. And it could be a, a method for somebody that's listening to this right now to have their life transformed um, and to just show up as the version that they've always wanted to show up as. So uh, thank you for being that voice and thank you for being vulnerable. Yeah, thanks for using this platform for good things. It's great. Really an honor to be on the show. Thank you very much. Track down Don if you're interested more. Your Instagram is Earth Medicines. Yeah, with two S's. With two S's, Don Bergeron. Love you, brother. Thank you very much. Love you too. Yeah, What's up, Comeback Stories family? It's Donnie dropping in here. So did you know that Darren and I's relationship started by me being his personal development, mindfulness, and mindset coach? I want to let you know about both my one-on-one -on -one coaching program, The Shift, and my group mastermind, Elevate Your Purpose. These coaching programs are specifically designed for people who are ready to take the next step in their purpose and level up their career, personal finances, and have more connected, deep, and meaningful relationships. 
My gift and part of my purpose is to help others take that next step in leveling up their lives so that they can have a greater impact on the lives of others, create success that's sustainable yet evolves and grows, and help build a legacy that will outlive your life. If this is calling you, just go to DonnieStarkins.com and apply for either one of my programs.